The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to welcome. I'm happy to welcome you back to the Trinity College Dublin School of English Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series. I'm Eric Swartz, a co-convener of the series this year with Orla Donnelly and Claire Point and Smith, all of us PhD researchers in the School of English. For the newcomers, the staff postgraduate seminars are a long-standing tradition in the School of English. They are an opportunity for Trinity staff, postgraduate researchers, and worthy guests to speak about work they're still pursuing or have recently finished. We welcome proposals in particular from postgraduates in the School of English who might have little experience presenting their work to a wider audience. Ordinarily, this event would take place in person and we'd go to the ginger man after, but since last year, the Trinity Longroom Hub has graciously hosted it online where out of an abundance of caution, it will continue until at least this December. Feel free to look at our schedule using the links in chat. We have a great lineup of speakers who will present every other Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Now, before I introduce today's speaker, a few thank yous and a couple pointers for attendees. First off, thank you to the Long Room Hub for hosting the seminars over the past year, and especially Quiva Whelan, our dedicated and competent staff liaison. Thank you to last year's conveners, Janice Deitner, Orla, Starling, Orla Darling, and Margaret Masterson, who were the guinea pigs for this online stuff and gave us valuable insight into running the series. Thank you also to Professor Paul Delaney, our staff contact who met us over the summer and helped us start planning the series. Finally, the Zoom webinar has a Q&A fun function. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and type it at, and type your question at any point during the talk. Near the end, we will take a few minutes and get through as many as we can before the end of the hour. All other comments and conversations go in the chat. Please keep it civil. Don't post anything that would get you or us fired. That's what Twitter is for. If you do tweet something provocative and dangerous about DH Lawrence, tag us at, trin at, TLR, at TLR Hub and at Seminars TCD 2021. The links to those are in the chat. Now, most of you know her or know of our speaker already. And I'm deeply pleased to welcome Professor Eve Patton. Eve lectures in the School of English here at TCD and is director of the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Her most recent publication is as editor, Irish Literature in Transition, 1940 to 1980, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. And her talk is from Ireland, Revolution, and the English Modernist Imagination, forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Thank you very much for being with us today, Eve. Well, thank you very much, uh, Eric. Hello, everyone. And, and my thanks to Eric and to Orla and Claire for uh, inviting me to uh, kick off this series and to talk about uh, some work I've just finished, which is uh, a book about how revolutionary Ireland, the island of 100 years ago, shows up in the sideways glances of English writers of uh, the long modernist era, um, particularly uh, in fiction, in, in work by Virginia Woolf, Wyndham Lewis, right through to Graham Greene and T.H. White um, of, of the kind of second wave modernist era of the 1940s. Uh, I'm interested in this subject partly because it's just fascinating Irish and British literary history, um, but also I was intrigued by the way in which um, English writers of the interwar period in particular kept looking um, sideways to Ireland for portents or uh, premonitions of what might happen in England, that there might well be a revolution of some kind in interwar England. Uh, and I suppose what I've ended up with is an interest in something I think of as a kind of transnational Gothic. Um, but uh, looking more theoretically, I'm, I'm using in particular Tyrus Miller's formulation in uh, his, his useful book, Late Modernism, uh, the idea that these works are late modernist works that are characteristically perforated by history. And that idea of perforation speaks very usefully to the way in which Irish references 
are always minimal or marginal and occasional. And yet on an accumulative basis, they do build up to a very interesting relationship. Um, one of the writers I'm looking at is D.H. Lawrence, uh, still uh, controversial and, uh, um, and dangerous, as Eric mentioned, after all these years. Uh, Lawrence himself never went to Ireland. He was very dismissive of it. And in 1919, he wrote of Ireland as a blank, a blank round O on the map, a sort of nowhere. Uh, but all the same, Irish references perforate, to use Miller's words, his later novels in particular. And uh, for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, I'm just going to look at this relationship specifically in terms of the impact of the Easter Rising of 1916 on Lawrence. And as you know, this was when uh, the Irish volunteers led by Porrick Pierce took over the GPO on what was uh, uh, what, what, on O'Connell Street. Uh, um, and this was a very symbolic moment, of course, for the path of Irish independence. But the Easter Rising also has a very curious attenuated hangover in the longer stretch of English modernist writing during the post-war decade, uh, and particularly in English fiction in the 1920s. The, the Rising keeps appearing in a kind of spectral or ghostly form, um, like a, a nervous tick in the literary landscape. And in such illusions, what I see is how often the Rising is, not surprisingly perhaps, relieved of uh, any kind of nationalist rationale, and instead fitted into broader modernist narratives that group it alongside primitivism, Celticism, uh, bloodshed, and uh, concepts of degeneration, which were adaptable to the kind of interwar anxieties um, about revolution in Europe, uh, and particularly the, the instability of, uh, of Russia and, uh, and also Italy in this period. For Lawrence, the, the suddenly assertive political face of modern Ireland was realized in 1916, and it grated uh, very painfully for him against his huge investment in ideas of a Celtic primitivism. Um, Aldous Huxley, who uh, I think writes very well on Lawrence, rightly identified Lawrence as being fundamentally apolitical. Um, he said the, the political was to him a nightmare, and he fled from it. Primitive communities, this is still Huxley, primitive communities are so small that their politics are essentially unpolitical. That, for Lawrence, was one of their greatest charms. And that sums up exactly how I think Lawrence had hitherto thought of Ireland. And of course, events in 1916 just shattered this apolitical day uh, daydream. After 1916, it's a political Ireland that surfaces intermittently in his later novels as indicative of the threat of a worldwide revolutionary violence. And you get this kind of associative transnational chain of reference uh, that stretches from the enervated England that he shows in Women in Love, and that's from 1920, through to the anarchist Italy that he portrays in Aaron's Rod, that's a couple of years later, and I hope to get time to talk about that novel. And then onwards to an Australia, which is on the brink of a socialist revolution in Kangaroo. And finally, a volatile Mexico in his 1926 novel, The Plumed Serpent. And once you go looking for them, believe me, uh, Irish references show up in all of these novels. So I'm going to trace a little bit of, of his connections at a deeper level. If you can uh, move on to the next slide, please, Claire. Uh, and here, of course, is uh, Lawrence on the left. Um, with the exception of the playwright John Millington Singh, Lawrence was very dismissive of what he called Irishy people, um, particularly the smooth talking luminaries of the Irish literary revival who uh, would turn up in London. Um, and this antipathy culminated in his venomous creation of the Irish play playwright Michaelis, who is Constance Chatterley's Irish lover in Lady Chatterley's Lover. And Michaelis is initially celebrated by a credulous London society until it's discovered that uh, he's a down at heel Dublin street rat in need of a good kicking. But despite this uh, antipathy, some of Lawrence's best friends were Irish, uh, notably the Irish lawyer, Gordon Campbell, who became uh, the second Baron Glenavy. Um, 
if you, you're looking at a very famous photograph of D.H. Lawrence with the writers Catherine Mansfield and John Middleton Murray, and also his new wife, Frida. And this was a picture taken on Lawrence's wedding day to Frida in uh, July of 1914, um, taken by Campbell, in fact, Lawrence's Irish friend. Uh, a very attractive photograph, as you can see, they haven't bothered to take the washing down in the backdrop, but it makes it even more appealing. So Campbell took this photograph, and in fact, Campbell had been a witness at the wedding alongside Middleton Murray. Um, and Lawrence stayed with Campbell very frequently in London during this period. Uh, he planned to visit him in Ireland. Uh, that plan was shelved because of the outbreak of the First World War. Um, but he wrote to Campbell frequently. And, and one letter in particular interests me. It's a letter of 1914 in December. Uh, Campbell had asked for advice on a novel he was trying to write. Um, and uh, Lawrence, never holding back, uh, advised him in a, a letter of several pages. If you can move on, Claire, we'll see the next slide. Um, you can see a bit of the letter. This is a, a sketch portrait of, uh, of Campbell take, uh, done by Mary Duncan on the left. Um, and uh, what the letter I think usefully introduces is the difference that Lawrence is trying to forge between the idea of uh, an, an apolitical Celtic symbolist Ireland and this new political Ireland that he was so apprehensive about. And he keeps saying to Campbell, why don't you seek out the whole of the Celtic vision instead of messing about talking of Ireland? And he continues here, you should try to grasp, I think, don't be angry at my tone, the complete whole which the Celtic symbolism made in its great time. We are such egoistic fools. We see only the symbol as a subjective expression, as an expression of ourselves. That makes us so sickly when we deal with the old symbols, like Yeats. The old symbols were each a word in a great attempt at formulating the whole history of the soul of man. They are unintelligible, except in their whole context. So your Ireland of you Irishmen of today is a filthy mucking about with a part of the symbolism of a great statement or vision. Now, you can see that Lawrence's endorsement of this complete whole uh, of, of Celtic symbolism conveys something of, of his attraction to a writer like Singh, who's so important for all English novelists and writers in this period. And it also, even though he's a bit down on Yeats here, I think suggests just how close he was to um, Yeats, uh, early Yeats in particular, and that both writers were looking to tailor mythological, esoteric and, and symbolist systems uh, as a, a means of managing and, and perhaps distancing um, the reality of uh, a difficult political Ireland, and indeed, uh, in Lawrence's case, a difficult political England at the same time. What the Celtic could better provide, uh, Lawrence considered, was shown by Campbell's wife, uh, the illustrator Beatrice Elvery. And if Claire moves on to the next slide, uh, please. This Now this didn't, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not very sharp focus on this wonderful portrait of the Elvery family, uh, an Irish bohemian family, a very, very talented family of artists. Um, you will know them uh, from passing by on Suffolk Street, various other places in Dublin, Elvery's Sports Shop, and they founded the Elvery's Sports Chain. Um, and uh, some of you will have noticed that above Elvery's is usually an elephant. Um, and this was a kind of joke symbol of the family name, Elvery. Um, this picture is painted by uh, Beatrice Elvery's sister, Dorothy, who's over to the left of the picture. But Beatrice herself is, is pictured here right at the back center in the pose that she adopted for the famous portrait that she sat for, for the painter William Orpen. And uh, she'd studied art under William Orpen um, and uh, was a very talented and acclaimed stained glass artist. She'd also done illustrations for the Koala uh, Press uh, that uh, Yeats's sisters, of course, were involved in. But what Lawrence is likely to have seen of her work at this time in London um, are some other illustrations. And again, Claire, if you wouldn't mind moving on to the next slide. Uh, this is uh, Heroes of the Dawn from 1913. And it's uh, a book of Irish mythological stories, including the story of Finn McCool, uh, done by uh, Violet Russell, who was the wife of the uh, Irish poet George Russell, or AE. Um, but the illustrations are done by Beatrice Elvery. And 
They include both the lovely watercolor uh, picture that I had on my first slide, but then all the way through these pen and ink uh, illustrations of the stories. Um, and you'll see uh, that they, I suppose, render down the, the Irish narrative into the, the kind of safe stock of uh, Celtic mythology, the wolfhounds, the goddesses, the warriors, the shadowy horses, and so on, in very much the, the um, style that was uh, associated with Irish revival art. And the book was published by the Dublin publishers, Maunsell. Uh, Lawrence seemed to like this kind of material. Beatrice was somewhere on the track, he wrote to Campbell. And this grudging acknowledgement, I think, illuminates his pull towards this version of Ireland, the abstracts of the whole of the Celtic vision. Um, as antithetical to what he was going to have to confront the ugly specifics of militant nationalism. I should add that the, the, the wider geography of the British Isles comes into play at this point because in 1915, Lawrence, uh, who was enraged at the suppression of his novel, The Rainbow, under obscenity laws in Britain, moved to Cornwall, right down on the very far south coast of England. Uh, and his invocation of Cornwall as another Celtic kingdom, um, a land apart from what wartime England had become, is a constant refrain in his correspondence of this period. Uh, everything in Cornwall, he writes, is remote and desolate and unconnected. It still belongs to the days before Christianity, the days of Druids or desolate Celtic magic and conjuring. By February of 1916, he'd moved right down the Cornish Peninsula to Zena, uh, and by the late spring of that year, he was very settled in what he called a queer, outlandish, Celtic country. Um, and this need for escape, of course, was intensified with the increasing pressures of wartime and restrictions on civilians. Both Lawrence and Frieda, his wife, who was German-born, came under constant harassment and suspicion from British authorities while they were in Cornwall. They were always being suspected of signaling to submarines and so on. And of course, Lawrence himself endured what he uh, found to be humiliating physical examinations by uh, the military fitness boards, um, uh, an experience which traumatized him enough to write about it in his novel, Kangaroo, where the 1916 nightmare chapter revisits these experiences of harassment and uh, physical examination and has the protagonist, who is Lawrence himself, again trying to call out to um, the land of, of the ancient Celts as, as a, a safe space, if you like, a safe place. In fact, he calls out in Cornwall to the Tua de Danon, the Irish fairy tribe, which he would have uh, learned about from Elbury's illustrations. So Lawrence had located this Celtic sanctuary on England's southernmost uh, promontory when the Easter Rising took place. Um, and uh, I suppose it might have been expected that he would extrapolate that what happened in the rebellion itself as some kind of mystery of blood sacrifice and align it with this, this Celtic material that he was so invested in. But in fact, he didn't. And his response speaks to a significant cohort of British writers and intellectuals uh, for whom the Irish rebellion in 1916 wasn't some kind of Celtic aberration, but rather it was confirmation of a modern degeneration within Europe itself, and indeed premonition of revolution in England. Um, and in this sense, the limited drama of Dublin in 1916 in the Rising uh, didn't challenge um, what was going on uh, on the Western Front. It didn't challenge the horrors of, of the First World War. Um, but it just merged with it in this downward trajectory um, of a, a moral and political and intellectual decline and fall, or in the terms that Lawrence keeps talking about both things, the First World War and the Easter Rising, an assault on the body, so an assault on the body politic, but it's translated into these terms which he was so sensitized to in 1916, the assault on, on the body. Um, and I'll, I'll pick that up again in a minute. Um, the Rising began on Monday, the 24th of April, and two days later, Lawrence was already writing about it. Uh, My dear nation is bitten by the tarantula, he wrote to Cynthia Asquith, who was the daughter-in-law of the beleaguered prime minister, and the venom has gone home at last. 
And he wrote similarly to the novelist E.M. Forster, um, saying that the, the rebellion had shocked him, another rent in the old ship's bottom, that ship being England, uh, of course. While his political response to the rising itself and the causes of the rising is ambivalent, I mean, he'd written as well to Forster saying that he regarded the rebels themselves as mostly windbags. Um, it's clear that the Dublin rebellion not only uh, alerted him to the wider threat of revolution at home, but it also plunged him further into a pre-existing depression uh, about world events. And one letter which I'm very interested in is what he wrote to Ottoline Morel. Uh, Ottoline Morel was the, um, the writer and the, the, the famous host of a literary salon at Garsington Manor, which uh, hosted various pacifists, philosophers. Lawrence is a, a frequent visitor there. Um, and she's an extremely important figure in drawing together Irish nationalist sympathizers in Britain during this period. Lawrence wrote to her very often, and in the letter I want to look at, which was written on the 5th of May, so just a couple of days after the British authorities began to execute the Dublin 1916 rebels, um, he consoles her on how, knowing how upset she'll be about events in Ireland. Claire, if you can move on to the next slide, slide please. Uh, there's Ottilie Morell. Um, um, the, the letter itself is, for me, entirely reflexive. It's about the shock of the rising and the, uh, the execution of the rebels to the body politic and what it says about British democracy and indeed what it's saying specifically about England. One is at best only a torn fragment, a torn remnant of a man, Lawrence writes to Morell. One can feel the misery and shame at all that takes place. It's always sad when a big thing like our democracy must come to an end but that it should end so despicably hurts one considerably. The undignified, ludicrous downfall makes us absolutely ashamed and unable to bear up. One is ashamed in one's soul, and that is very hard to bear, to be shamed in one's very being. In so far as I am a man belonging to my race, my tradition, and my age, I feel pierced to the quick with hopeless shame and quite, quite hopeless. So that's the letter to Morel that, that uh, follows the, the rising in the execution of the rebels. And of course, with my um, aggressive overreading, I'm desperate to see that use of the word pierced in this letter as a, as a homophone for Pierce, the leader of uh, the volunteers. But, uh, but anyway, the letter splinters then into this mess of histrionic imagery. Lawrence writes of how rats and insects and leeches are feeding off the dismembered body of modern European civilization. So it's a very dramatic, catastrophic take that has been uh, sparked by his response to the rising itself. And this is, I think, uh, the end of a serial itinerary of anguish that he'd gone through um, between 1915 and 1916. In a year before the rising, in April of 1915, He'd been distraught at the death of Rupert Brooke, the poet. Uh, a month later, he'd been distraught again at the sinking of the Lusitania off the Irish coast and at riots in London. So by the time the rising takes place, he is, he is ready for uh, catastrophe um, and, and panic about the overthrow of the existing order. And he keeps talking at this time about the revolution that's going to come now in England to Bertrand Russell, the pacifist, philosopher, he writes, as for political revolution, that must come too. And again, Cynthia Asquith picking up the theme. He talks about the domino effect that's going to trip rebellion across the continent. Once England goes, then Europe goes, and so on. So news of the rising and news of its bloody aftermath reached Lawrence uh, when he was already in an anguished state um, and convinced there would be a revolutionary bloodbath on the home front, as indeed many uh, writers and intellectuals were at this time. But it also provided evidence to him of a, a degraded system of European nationalism in general, that nationalism was at fault. Um, and this was something he'd written to Morel about just a week before the rising. Um, everything that is done, he'd written nationally in any sense, is now vile and stinking, whether it's in England or Germany. And it was in this agitated state of mind that he picked up the fragment, an early fragment of prose that he'd written, and began to work it up into the novel that would become Women in Love from 1920. 
uh, published in 1920. And in Women in Love, uh, we very frequently confront through the conversations of the two protagonist sisters, the degradation, the hidebound nature of a European political system that relies on ideas of the nation and nationalism. Um, who can take the nationalization of Ireland really seriously, whatever it does, says Gudrun at one point, who can take political England seriously? And you get that twinning of Ireland and England in this process of, of degraded fatal nationalism. Um, interestingly, in another of Lawrence's um, Irish connections, he couldn't get Women in Love published initially in England um, and decided he would try to get it published by Maunsell in Dublin, um, which would have been a bit of a coup for the small Dublin publishers, but uh, obviously was um, uh, an unlikely uh, request from him. What I, if I have time, I just want to come on and show you uh, how Echoes of Revolutionary Ireland um, and its aftermath begin then to infiltrate the sequence of novels that I'm talking about. Um, and uh, particularly to look at Aaron's Rod. We've just time to look at this one. This is the novel, the novel, the novel that Lawrence began after Women in Love in eight, 1918, after the end of the war. And he began, uh, he finished drafting it in 1921. It's uh, again, a bit of a mess of a novel. It cracks under the strain of everything he wanted to put in about the disaster of the war, about sexual identities, about revolutionary uh, incentives, about colonialism, about nationalism again, about anarchy. Um, so it, it's an extremely difficult novel to read. But in attempting to synthesize these themes in Aaron's Rod, Lawrence calls up briefly uh, an Irish political hinterland in a very curious set piece. And this is a, a violent altercation that takes place uh, between the protagonist, uh, who's a Lawrence-like writer called Rawdon Lilly, and an Irish socialist called Jim Bricknell. Um, and if you uh, go to the next slide, please, Claire. Now, the man here, not Ernest Hemingway, as somebody said to me, this is uh, the character of Jim Bricknell, based on the real-life Irish revolutionary and trade union activist James or Jack White. And White was the founder in 1913 of the workers' militia, the Irish citizen army. Uh, he was a rather larger than life a figure in the period who had worked with James Connolly during the 1913 lockout or the general strike. Um, and uh, when war broke out, White first went to France as an ambulance driver, but then he came back to London. He couldn't get home to Dublin uh, during the rising uh, for obvious reasons, but he did organize a protest uh, strike in London after Connolly was executed. And he was imprisoned in Pentonville because of this. And he shows up quite a lot at various activist, um, Irish nationalist activist uh, rallies and so on in London. Um, he also moved on the fringes of London's Bohemian and, and Bloomsbury circles. Uh, and he met D.H. Lawrence in 1917, uh, having turned up at a party at the Middleton Murrays. And he turned up again shortly afterwards, I think uninvited, to Lawrence's cottage down in Cornwall. And here's some kind of angry uh, confrontation and a physical assault on Lawrence took place. In Errant Rod, Lawrence translates this experience into a chapter called A Punch in the Wind. Um, and uh, Bricknell arrives at the remote cottage, which is shared by Rawdon Lilly, this writer, and his wife. And he proceeds to inflict on the couple his uh, barstool rant about the state of the world, including revolutionary Ireland. He drinks heavily, he outstays his welcome, and he gets very annoyed with Rawdon Lilly to the extent that he's eventually provoked to violence. He leaps from his chair. And at this point, uh, I'll read from the slide. At this point, Jim suddenly sprang from his chair at Lilly and gave him two or three hard blows with his fists upon the front of the body. Lily sat motionless as a statue, his face like paper. One of the blows had caught him rather low so that he was almost winded and could not breathe. He sat paralyzed as a winded man is. Now, uh, this rather ambiguous uh, blow that has caught him rather low on, on the, uh, the front of the body is quite vague from Lawrence. In fact, uh, White told another writer and you'll excuse my indelicacy here, uh, that he had kicked D.H. Lawrence up the arse. 
which uh, would risk turning this uh, presentation into an episode of Father Ted, I think. So I'll, I'll pass over that quickly. Um, but you can see that this drunken knockabout translated into the kind of concerns Lawrence has in these novels after 1916 um, and, and linked to this continuing Laurentian motif of the assault on, on the body. Um, engages a version of Ireland or a remnant of Ireland, this, this revenant figure of, of Bricknell, based on Jack White, and uses him as the source of a contamination of violence that's going to spread outwards from Ireland to infect England and then on to a European landscape. And the rest of the novel will track uh, what's happening across Europe in strikes, in riots, in assassinations, and eventually there's an anarchist explosion in a cafe in Florence in which uh, the protagonists are caught up um, in the novel. This kind of uh, spatial expansion of violence with an Irish um, reference point shapes or, or I think uh, um, is visible right throughout the remainder of Lawrence's uh, novels um, in the rest of his life. Um, his apprehension of revolution in general and anarchist movements in particular um, uh, gathered pace during the, the patchwork composition of Aaron's Rod. Uh, he uses Ireland again as a pointer to revolutionary landscapes in his leadership novels, as they're called, Kangaroo, 1923, uh, which, as I said, looks at socialist uprisings in Australia, and particularly in The Plumed Serpent of 1926, where his protagonist is the widow of a, a, a dead Irish revolutionary who goes to um, uh, New Mexico, who goes to Mexico, uh, which is also in a state of revolutionary ferment. In these novels, the sense of uh, revolutionary Europe's contamination spreads to the new world, but we continue to see Irish references and allusions and play a small, but a very significant role, I think, as portents of violent insurgency, and again, of a degraded or a fatal nationalist instinct. And in the wake of 1916, this Irish element gains an elastic constituency. And again, you can see it brings Lawrence very close to, uh, to W.B. Yeats. And the Yeats who uh, in 1919 was working on the second coming with that sense of the mere anarchy that's loosed upon the world. But again, spreading from uh, an Irish source point or somehow manifest in that Irish precedent. Um, Lee Jenkins, uh, the critic who writes very well on Lawrence, talks about the transnational Lawrence who instinctively carries portents and meanings across borders and from one culture or one country into another. She's writing in relation to Lawrence in America. But I think that idea of, of the transnational Lawrence carrying portents also speaks very well to how he uses Irish references and precedents in this marginal uh, um, sporadic way, but with this sense of a contaminating effect on the body of the novel itself. And it also um, reinforces the pattern through which Lawrence did apprehend uh, Easter 1916 as something that would be replicated across uh, a degenerative and, and pre-revolutionary England and in turn a pre-revolutionary Europe. The way Lawrence, I think, dealt with this legacy of 1916 uh, and uh, a difficult political Ireland in the end was again to disappear Ireland, to use this uh, not unusual uh, concept uh, in the 1920s of an Irish non-existence or invisibility. Um, this is, um, I think, loaded into the idea that the Irish question, as it was known, had somehow been settled by the early 1920s after the Civil War, um, that the Free State now had a government in control and by the end of the decade was, was therefore uh, no longer a problem that, that asserted Ireland in, or Irishness in any way. So this disappearing is something that Lawrence picks up again in 1927 when he writes to the Campbells, who he's fallen out of touch with a little, from Florence saying, I'm a voice from the past, and he wants to come and visit Ireland at that point. Um, and he writes again to, to Beatrice Elvery, now Campbell, in the spring of the following year, now he's in Switzerland, um, talking again about a possible Ireland trip, the Ireland idea, as he calls it, hoping it wouldn't always rain and I wouldn't have a political aspect 
and be shot or arrested. And of course, he's being facetious here. But if you look at the final slide, Claire, if you wouldn't mind. And this is, you'll see on the left, the, the famous portrait uh, from William Orpen of Beatrice Elvery um, in her um, uh, Edwardian finery. Um, but uh, she's now Beatrice Campbell and Lawrence writes to her, somehow I can form no picture at all of Ireland, much more easily of Ecuador or Manchuria. But I think a country which doesn't really exist and doesn't assert its non-existence violently anymore as Italy does, must be rather a relief, geographically nowhere, as you say. So whatever political aspect Lawrence feared uh, the visit to Ireland never took place. Uh, Lawrence was already ill by the time he was writing these letters and he died in France in 1930. Uh, I think the reality of any kind of modern politically realized Irish nation remained well out of his sight and indeed uh, beyond his imagination, um, despite the fact that this supposedly non-existent country had already left its political residue right across um, the landscapes of his later novels. And I think I will stop at that point with thanks. Thank you very much, Eve. That was a great talk. Uh, we, I'm sure we all learned a lot. Um, now, we have a few questions for you. Um, the first one is that uh, there seems to be a kind of renaissance in the study of personal papers, the letters of Shirley Jackson by Bernice Murphy and Frank Shovelin's McGarren letters among them. Um, why are we so compelled to excavate the author from their correspondences? Oh, thanks. What a, what a great question. And of course, um, fresh from uh, having had a most enjoyable session on these writers' letters uh, on Friday for Culture Night. Um, I was I was thinking about this, in fact, Eric, and uh, of course, it, it, it's so tempting simply to translate the novels backwards into the content that we see in the letters and, and not recognize the shaping and the conceptual management of ideas that goes into fiction in particular. The letter writer is never the same person as the author. But in Lawrence's case, there are several volumes of letters. There's a huge amount of material. Um, and for me, the most useful thing is to see his long list of correspondence and his circles. And you can see when he is um, uh, consoling himself with particular like-minded figures, such as the painter Mark Gertler, when he is writing and adapting his material for different correspondence, such as the way he writes to Morel in, um, in uh, very consolatory terms, even though he disagreed with many of her views. And again, when he writes to Cynthia Asquith, who uh, you know, he, he obviously had an eye to her, uh, cabinet connections. Um, but for me, Lawrence's letters are incredibly personal um, and they're incredibly dark at times. I think I probably, if I'd just read the novels, I would never have appreciated the extent of his emotional distress, his psychological distress, his physical sensitivity, his sexual sensitivities. Uh, so it, the letters fully amplify a lot of the concerns that then go into the novels. Um, and you also get the aggressive throwaway remarks. And this is where you can pick up um, in letters, for example, to Garnet, the, the publisher, many of his kind of throwaway comments about how annoying the Irish are and uh, how he, you know, he can't stand George Moore and, and everything the Irish write is just a sham and so on. Now, again, there's a little bit of theatricality going on in, in that correspondence, but it's very useful for me. So letters very much part and, and parcel of looking at uh, him in, in, this, in this book. Our next question is from Lee Jenkins. Eve, thank you for a wonderful paper. Have you looked at Lawrence's sometime friend, Philip Heseltine's uh, year in Dublin during the First World War and his dealings with Mansell? Indeed, and uh, I'm delighted, uh, Lee, that you're uh, you're joining us because uh, you gave me so much help in thinking about Lawrence and uh, particularly his altercation uh, with White. But the Mansell connection, uh, we did try and trace um, through my uh, former postgraduate, Jane Mahoney, who's an expert on Irish publishing. And Heseltine, of course, is there in the background. 
uh, as is George Moore, he asked George Moore for help as well, trying to get Monsell to uh, take an interest in women in love. And we've managed to trace the correspondence a little way, and then it just disappears, as if some of the correspondence was deliberately destroyed. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's one of, of course, two interesting publishing endeavors with Lawrence that involve Ireland. Um, because uh, around the same time as the novels I'm talking about, Lawrence uh, was putting together for Oxford University Press uh, his movements in European history. And uh, there was uh, an incentive from an Irish publisher to do an Irish version of this under a pseudonym, and indeed to use it in uh, the Irish secondary school system. And again, it seems very unlikely. Lawrence was asked uh, uh, to go through it and take out, I think, all, all refer any reference to ideas that the Pope may have erred and to uh, stop being so positive about Presbyterianism. I think those were the edits he was going to have to make for the Irish version of his history book. Uh, and he complains in his letter to his sister about uh, those Irish bastards, they can all go to hell and he's not gonna do these edits. And in the end, that too, that plan too peters out. So there are these interesting connections that are going on as there are right across this period with all the writers I'm talking about that happen because of publishing connections behind the scenes, um, which are often pragmatic and self-interested and have very little to do with the political landscapes in the foreground. But, but thank you, Lee, and a, and a very interesting question. It's interesting to hear about these lesser known uh, instances of, of publishing concerns and uh, influencing uh the the final product um our next question is uh you mentioned the harassment and humiliating physical examinations that lawrence endured at the hands of the british authority in cornwall and ha and how he returns to the motif of assault on the body over and over again in his work how much do you think his trauma around being physically violated affected his depiction of the body politic and the histrionic visceral image imagery you discussed one of his letters becoming yeah yeah it's a, it's a tricky question eric because of course any of you who've read lawrence's earlier novels um if you've read sons and lovers for example or even the rainbow um, you'll know how attuned he already is to physical body uh, as an object of aesthetic interest the physical body as a manifestation of suffering um, and the physical body, and particularly the male body, as a, a, as a I suppose, a site of um, sexual interest. Um, so it's already there before what he undergoes in 1916. Uh, but I think there's no doubt, and again, this, this shows up very clearly in the distressing letters that he writes in this period, um, that he is thinking in terms of his own body as something that is exposed and, and uh, examined in this punitive way as a ready symbol of um, a, a kind of national degradation that's going on during the First World War in England more generally. Um, and it, 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 it goes right through the later novels um, to um, The Plumed Serpent, where again, we have this intense physical and sexual focus um, on, uh, on the, the male body um, in, in that novel. Um, so I, I think it's, I mean, you can overread it, um, but it's interesting to see in, in recent criticism that's resurgent about Lawrence in Francis Wilson's uh, new book, Burning Man, that that focus on Lawrence and the way in which the body is absolutely central to how he understands the body politic, that that's still coming through again. So I think there's a lot more there. I'm not going to speculate that, um, you know, he, he conveniently uses uh, what he went through in 1916 in this way, but it certainly is thematically uh, enabling for him, let's say. I saw a question on the poor Michaelis coming in, did I? Yes, uh, that's from Frank Shovelman. And he asked, uh, have critics speculated on whether Michaelis and Lady Chatterley's Lover is based on a particular Irish playwright? Yeah, thanks, Frank. He's not at all. He's most critics accept that he's based on um, the very successful writer, Michael Arlen, who was in fact originally Armenian and who Lawrence knew a little bit. Um, so 
if that is the case, uh, I, I'm intrigued by why Lawrence gives him this Irish affiliation, this Irish gloss, and there's quite a lot of detail about Michaelis in, in that regard. And it, it, uh, it corresponds to the way in which Irish identities are given to lots of characters in this period who may not in fact be Irish as a source uh, in, in original terms. Um, and you see Wyndham Lewis doing the same thing, for example, um, in some of his novels. And I think there is an idea of the, the flag of convenience that Irishness had become in the 1920s, carrying these ideas of uh, literary fatigue and uh, uh, literary inauthenticity, if it's on a literary level, but also an incipient violence. Um, so I think that Michaelis is, is a more interesting character than, uh, um, than he sometimes looks, because, of course, we quickly move on uh, from him to Mellors, to the gamekeeper, who's the, the obvious uh, love interest for, for Constance Chatterley in that novel. I'd love to know more. Uh, uh, Frank, if you know more, or Lee, you know, if you have ideas on the, on the attribution, please let me know. Uh, thank, yeah, thanks, Eve. And I was wondering, um, you mentioned the plume serpent in the context of uh, Lawrence's hangover from 1916, as well as Aaron's rod and kangaroo. And I was wondering if you see a, uh, a family resemblance between the depictions of violent political violence, um, and whether whether it gets more to me, it seems like it gets more enthusiastic almost. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I, I'm wondering how you would characterize that. Yeah, no, I'm 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 conflating all different kinds of violence because, in fact, um, by the time you get to um, Aaron's Rod and the second half of Aaron's Rod and then in Kangaroo, what Lawrence is actually beginning to present is, is anarchist violence, which very often can't be tied to a specific national point of origin. So the bomb explosion, when the bomb goes off in Kangaroo, for example, it's an unknown anarchist. We don't know who's thrown the bomb, so we're not quite sure why. And of course, at this time, as in the 1890s, anarchy is perhaps even more frightening than revolution because it doesn't have a recognizable rationale. Um, and uh, so there's an interest in anarchy as there is in failed revolutions, uh, revolutions in Europe that are the old model of revolution and that simply, simply end in a kind of stalemate. But I think by the time you get to Plumed Serpent, there's another legacy as well um, at play. Um, and I'm I speculate on this, but uh, in 1916, in that letter to Ottilie Morell that I, uh, that I talked to you a bit about, uh, Lawrence goes on to say that he's been reading the life of Charles Stuart Parnell that was written by Parnell's then widow. Uh, and this book had been published in uh, 1914 um, and was a huge bestseller, runaway bestseller in England because it was scandal. Kitty O'Shea, of course, uh, who was married, had had a, a relationship with the Irish parliamentary leader, Charles Stuart Parnell, back in, he died in 1891. And this story resurfaces with a vengeance uh, after um, Catherine uh, Parnell, as she had then become, writes about it and writes a two volume um, memoir. So Lawrence is reading this book and he says to Morell, you know, I'll lend you my copy in it the passing bell of this current tragedy begins to ring. So he'd recognized the beginning of what Yeats, of course, talks about as, as this, uh, this epoch, this, this desperate epoch in Irish history that is beginning with the fall of Parnell and, uh, and resurfaces in 1916 in the rising. And then Lawrence takes it forward, I think, to the plumed serpent, because I would speculate that the Irish revolutionary widow um, that he features in The Plume Serpent is a version of Kitty O'Shea. Uh, certain things, that, certain descriptions of the death scene of her revolutionary husband, for example, the great Irish hero, um, there are echoes of, of possibly of, uh, of that uh, biography of Parnell that she'd written, the memoir of Parnell. But again, it's this sense of an Irish political failure, preparing the ground to understand English political failure and European political failure that now has begun to contaminate uh, the new world 
um, and, and gone to Mexico or gone to Australia. So it's, it's again, another connection that I think um, is because of the publishing context that we have to recognize as well. You know, that the story of Parnell should have been done and dusted in the 1890s, but because the book is such a bestseller in 1914 and everyone's reading it, um, it revives that story and puts a particular Irish narrative back into play. Thanks very much, Eve. Uh, our next question is from Quiva Whelan. Uh, she writes, thanks for a fascinating paper. Is there an urban rural tension visible in how Irish elements are utilized? Uh, thinking of the use of the environment and landscape in Lady Chatterley's Lover. Thanks, Quiva. Of course. And, um, you know, even when Lawrence in 1928 is saying he's going to come and visit um, visit the, the Campbells, there's no sense that he's going to come and see them in Dublin. He's saying, I can't wait to get to the west of Ireland and, and call on Liam O'Flaherty. Uh, the sense that accelerates in the 1930s um, that the difficulty that Ireland had become politically was an urban feature. And you could simply leapfrog it by appealing to um, the west of Ireland and to rural landscapes and to going back to the iconography of uh, the Irish cottage, which becomes so clearly defined in the English imagination in the 1930s. Uh, so I think it's, it's very definitely part of that wide attention, which a lot of people listening to this will have worked on the, the urban rural divide in, uh, in Irish culture, um, which was the same, I mean, in English culture as well. And there you have Lawrence desperate to get out of London uh, and to get down to Cornwall because it got him away, not only from the pressures of a London literary society, but also the darkness of an industrial landscape that he'd come from in uh, the English Midlands. Um, so, no, I think that, that that's very pointed as well. What I think I'm not, I haven't quite fully understood are the landscapes that he conjures up in the fantastic scenery that he, he presents of both Australia, New South Wales in Kangaroo, and then in the plumed serpent of, of the Mexican landscape, which is of course completely different territory. But, but Lawrence was a superb landscape writer um, as a travel writer. And uh, it's perhaps something I could think about a little more. Okay, our, uh, our next uh, question is a mystery to me. Uh, Julie Bates, I'm about to allow you to talk. Julie, can you unmute yourself? Oh, it's in the Q&A, great. No, it isn't. Okay, <laughs> we're going to do a different question. And uh, uh, from Daryl Henley Rooney. Uh, firstly, thanks for a fascinating talk, Eve. Mark Twain once wrote that, quote, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Assuming that some of the other modernist writers that you have been examining for your forthcoming monograph had visited Ireland, do we see more balanced or positive views from these writers compared to those who never made it to Ireland's shores? That's a very good question, Daryl. Um, I was really troubled when I was first looking at Lawrence and Ireland because, uh, of course, I'd you know, gone straight to Google and put in Lawrence and Ireland. And the first thing that showed up was the website of a hotel, which shall remain nameless, in, I think, County Mayo, which advertises the fact that Lawrence wrote women in love while he stayed there in 1918. Uh, so this was <laughs> quite surprising to me as the idea that Lawrence could have gone anywhere in 1918 um, with the restrictions going on uh, was uh, took me aback a little bit. But um, anyway, um, but no, he never made it to Ireland. And in a way, I suppose the one of the things I started realizing that is that when uh, all of these writers say, oh, I can't wait to go to Ireland, I really want to go to Ireland. Um, that in itself becomes a kind of narrative of, I want to get out of England. It doesn't really matter that they don't actually go to Ireland, they don't cross the Irish Sea. Um, and I think for Lawrence, that's very much the case. 
you know, he, he has these fantasy portraits of the island that he's talking about and become increasingly extravagant and a little bit hallucinatory, in fact, by 1928. Possibly uh, he was on a fair bit of medication by then. Um, but they're never the real island. There's never any sense that he actually wants to make those plans. Um, and you get a big difference when you have, for example, Ottoline Morel, who came over in, I think, 1919, and she was taken around by Beatrice Elvery and, and met various uh, important uh, Irish figures of the revival of the arts movement and of um, the revolutionary movement. And for Morel, that made such a difference that she'd met people in real life, that she'd seen Dublin uh, close at hand. So when we hear Morel's side of the story in those letters to Lawrence, it's the utter distress that people she actually knew were now in prison, as she puts it. Places that she'd actually seen uh, have now been destroyed. So I think there is a, certainly a difference uh, between the writers who, who actually made the journey. Um, and it, it's, it becomes very important when you get to someone like Graham Greene, for example, who I talk, talked about before, who, um, went to Ireland as a young reporter in 1923 at the end of the Civil War, and he was sent specifically to look at the damage to Dublin and to Cork. So he traveled around and he has this imprint of the, the damaged cities and the broken bridges that he passes all the way along the route in his mind. And of course that what is what comes back to him when he uh, uh, revisits the subject of Ireland in his own work much later on. So I think there is that much more visceral sense of what Ireland was, obviously, for people who did travel across. And there were very many um, who made the journey. Travel writing is slightly different because by the 1930s, there's a huge push uh, from British publishers to include Ireland in the itinerary of, of um, travel books. Methuen and so on were all producing travel books uh, and Ireland very often featuring as simply an extension of uh, Britain still in that time. Um, is part of that itinerary and that was much more about getting people across to the west and seeing a kind of Paul Henry landscape version of the place. So a, a very meandering uh, traveling answer to that question Daryl but uh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it more in person perhaps. Okay we have just a few minutes left it's time for one or two more questions um, and we have one or two left to go so uh, if you have any more questions, uh, feel free to email them to Eve, I assume. If, uh, and uh, our next one is from Janice Deitner, who writes, uh, fantastic paper, Eve. Can you speak a bit about which other authors you're looking at whose works contain these traces of Irishness? Yes, Janice, very briefly, um, I'm pairing Lawrence in, the, in a chapter with Wyndham Lewis. And then even though they, they disliked each other, uh, Wyndham Lewis particularly, um, rude about Lawrence and his arty voodooism. Um, they're very similar, and I think the way they they want to circulate circulate these ideas of blood, violence, Celticism, primitivism, um, though from different viewpoints. So Lewis, Wyndham Lewis, is a very important figure. Again, someone who didn't go to Ireland till much later, but uses it for certain thematic strategies and ends uh, sporadically in his writing right from Blast, his, his journal onwards. Um, and uh, I, I, I then just take a run through um, Virginia Woolf right the way through to um, Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene and, and the 1940s writers and T.H. White, uh, who wrote um, almost all or redrafted almost all of the medieval Arthurian story of King Arthur um, in Ireland during the Second World War. And he weaves all kinds of Irish references into that narrative. So you get this lovely conflation of a, a kind of core English national mythology, the story of, of Arthur um, mapped onto all the Irish history and literature that White was trying to read uh, during the Second World War. And it's a very interesting complex conflation, confection perhaps. I am looking at the next question, which Tom Walker, you were right, it is a big baggy question and we only have two minutes left. So I think I, I have to leave it. But I, uh, to wrap this up, um, our, next, our next event is in two weeks. 
on the 5th of October. Um, thank you very much to Eve for uh, coming and speaking with us today. It was, uh, it was great and you made it very easy for me. Um, uh, in two weeks time, we will be hearing from uh, Janice Steitner, who is a PhD researcher in the School of English speaking about Shirley Jackson and Christian science and Anne Pasco Van Zyl speaking about exiled minds and old English poetry. So widely varying topics guaranteed to interest a large cross section of the people attending right now. Um, registration details and more information about the series will be made available soon on the Trinity Long Room Hub page. Um, thank you all very much for attending. This was a really strong turnout for our first seminar of the year. Um, and uh, I think that's it. Have a, have, have a good night, everybody. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.